0: (laughs) (laughs) the transfer window is part of the daily record podcast network subscribe at itunes or audio boom good day I'm Henry McCrae and welcome to the Transfer Window podcast, which, just like the real football transfer window, can be a land of hopes, dreams and opportunities. But those who enter walk a slippery path and one false move can see a once promising career fall flat on its backside. Just look at these guys. I'm talking, of course, about Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry, who, after nine Premier League games, are just about holding on to their jobs on this podcast, which is more than can be said, for three Premier League managers since we've already had to say so long. Farewell. feeder's in Goodbye to Frank de Boer, Craig Shakespeare and Ronald Koeman. We'll also be looking at managers who are having a better time of things and we'll get the lowdown from Duncan on his vote for FIFA as a Manager of the Year award which is tongues wagging and fingers tapping across social media for these last few days. But first, Let's have a look at the managers who have gone and what impact the summer transfer window had on their employment status. Ian, welcome. Does a manager live or die by his or his employer's decisions in the transfer market? Please discuss.
1: Well, thankfully, no one's actually died yet, Henry, uh, which, you know, that would be a a bit of a tragedy. But uh, careers-wise, yeah, I I, I think there's no doubt that all managers... uh, the way that their teams perform will ultimately be defined by obviously their personnel that they have at their uh, availability. Um, football has uh, modernised itself um, and uh, evolved in the past few years, especially in England, um, whereby the manager no longer has the first and last say on every player that leaves or enters his dressing room. Uh, more of, often not, <clears throat> there's now a is roughly uh, deemed a transfer committee, which is made up of a head of recruitment, a head of football operations, uh, the manager himself and the chief executive. Uh, there might sometimes be a specialist person, stats and analysis in there as well, but they would be, I suspect, only there for advisory role rather than actually making decisions. But I would comfortably estimate that 75 to 80% of the players who are sold and bought by Premier League clubs in the last transfer window, the manager did not have the final say. Now, the problem that gives, obviously, is someone like Ronald Koeman, who this week lost his job at Everton after a dreadful run of results, which you saw them languish in the bottom three of the English Premier League, is that having made some decisions, some good, some bad, you, you could argue, ultimately didn't make all the decisions, and therefore his job uh, was defined, and indeed he was the one. To whom the buck was passed when it came to uh, pointing the finger of blame as to why the team are not performing, uh, I'd say that's harsh on kim mostly because of one particular aspect of his squad setup. They sold twenty-five plus goals a season out to Manchester United, Romelu Lukaku, and did not replace him with anything like the player uh, that they needed, i.e., someone in that same role as a as a, t- a point striker. Uh, instead. Um, they ended up with effectively three number 10s and a very unbalanced team with no goals. I think one of the other major aspects and faults of their transfer window was accepting Wayne Rooney's return to the club as part of the Lukaku deal. And uh, and given the what we now realise is the poison gift of the former England captain um, who has underperformed, uh, who, uh, according to some players who have been on the pitch with him this season uh, so far, Um, looks shot to pieces, quote unquote, uh, both physically and mentally, like he's given up, his legs have gone. Um, And that's a very damning indictment for someone who's just turned 32. But we know Rooney doesn't live his life well in terms of health and uh, fitness. Uh, And obviously he's had his fair share of off the field controversies as well. So I guess we're not really that surprised that Rooney's not performing on the field. But to pay £50 million pounds for then Gylfi Sigurdsson, who I understand was someone cumman wanted and was pushing for him to be signed, then looks like poor business, given Sigurdsson's return so far and having seen Everton play on several occasions, he's not fitting into that team. So my sympathy does go somewhat to cumman because I don't believe he made all the decisions on players who were brought in. Um, I think you've got to look at Jordan Pickford and say he was a very good signing. In fact, if it wasn't for Pickford, um, they would have been humiliated by uh, conceding many more goals than they've actually conceded so far this season. And Meko Keane, I think there's hope for in terms of central defence for him to develop into a, a better and elite defender. But you've got to say people like Jordi uh sorry, Davy Klaassen, signed for £22 million from Ajax, hasn't made an appearance, he's on the bench. Kuku Martina, Sanchez, who was a striker who was meant to bring them goals. Wh- whoever made these decisions, and Koeman was certainly um, culpable for some of it, Omar Niasi, another one, um, then they have customers' job. And, Duncan, I think you'd agree that, uh, that it's not always the manager who makes these decisions these days, but probably the manager who actually does take the fall for it.
2: Yeah, it's, it's certainly not the manager who always makes the decisions these days. Um, and it's certainly the manager who is the first to take the fall when, when transfer business is done um, badly. And for the very simple reason that it's the cheapest solution. Um, you know, he, I think Chelsea were... When they were making the decision over dismissing their last manager, um, the, they decided, I mean, the, the, the director of football there talked about the, the dissent in the dressing room, used that as a reason for, for the sacking of a Premier League winning manager in, in Jose Mourinho, um, and, cited, and the, the, their point was that it was cheaper for them to dismiss even a very highly paid manager and his, and his coaching staff than it was to change the players. And that's essentially the reasoning. In all of these instances, when things go wrong, the the solution is to sack the manager, get someone in who can change the approach towards the players. Hopefully, elicit a bounce in performance. Um, you know, we all, all often talk about the new manager um, phenomenon um, when 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 you when when new coaches are hired and, and get results going again. And then have another look at um, the next transfer market down the line to to solve longer-standing problems. Um, Do managers live and die by transfer windows? I wouldn't go as far as that. They can live and die by transfer windows, but it's not just about uh, your purchases. Ultimately, and this is something we'll, we'll talk about later on, a manager is about the added value he can add in his coaching, in his handling of players. Any strategic decisions um, on the field, in substitution changes in the way he trains players, whether they avoid injury by the training methods, or whether those training methods cause injury. So all of those things they can add value even if they're 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 dealt a bad hand of cards. But by the same token, I think the, um, the only one on one interview I've seen Pep Guardiola give recently with um, with Gary Lineker in the BBC, he was asked about his by Lineker, about his, um, his managerial success. And, and, and the first thing he cited was the quality of the players. He said, ultimately, you need to have good players. So, and, and ultimately, give any manager his choice over whether someone else does the ultimate decision on bringing players in or not. And they'll want to have a say over it. And, and they will want to to make that recruitment as as strong as possible because they know... That the better the players they've got, the more chances they've got of 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 winning trophies or avoiding relegation or pushing their team to a higher position in the league.
0: Yeah, Cumin signed some, uh, you know, really made some really good sign-ins at Southampton. Sadio Mane, um, Virgil Van Dijk, Dusan uh, Tadic, uh, Fraser Forster were all you would consider to be good signings. I would have thought. Is that something that Everton look at and think? well, he's got a good record in the transfer market, um, You know, other than the fact that his team were playing well, would it have influenced a decision to sign him? And then they don't give him the same freedom that you might have had at Southampton?
2: I think that's I think a really good point. I think it's a really good point, Henry. And I remember when Koeman arrived at Southampton, it was a period in which Southampton were under huge criticism um, for selling a number of their top players to Liverpool. And uh, you know they'd had a sequence of sell, sales of, of better players. Um, the ownership of the club hadn't changed hands, but um, the, the the daughter of the owner had taken control after his his death, and there was a suspicion that she wanted to sell the club immediately and just take a profit from it. And I remember being asked um, to write a piece about that at the time and doing doing some work, calling some contacts on it, and they who actually, one of them who knew Koeman very well and what came back was, no, it's absolutely not the case. Kuman is very much in favour of these sales because it allows him to come into the club with a big um, uh, balance of cash to spend on bringing in players he wants to change the way the team plays and to get um, better results from him in this coming season than they had in the last season. And that was exactly how it panned out. He, he signed a number of players, the guys you mentioned, who did very well, um, uh, improved the performances on the field, uh, improved the quality of football they were playing, and uh, basically established the, the the framework and the reputation for him to, to be a candidate for a job like Everton when it came up. Um, I think the, the problem at Everton, as I understand it, is that you've got a situation where there are, there was a lot of money. There's, there was a lot of money to spend in that window, but there were also a lot of separate camps having arguments over how it should be spent. So you had the new owner, who was, I understand, very much responsible for Wayne Rooney being being brought to the club because he want, he liked the glamour of the idea of signing Wayne Rooney, and clearly, if he did any due diligence on on the kind of issues that Ian mentioned, um, that that hamper. Rooney as a player and, and which I don't think he's ever going to recover his, his former glories um, from if he did any of that due diligence he ignored it and went ahead with the the, the purchase anyway um, you have the previous owner who still has shares in the club and still has a say in in recruitment um, still involves himself in that, you have the director of football who has been uh, advising on certain players and advising the club to sign certain players and then you've got Koeman himself who is, as Ian correctly pointed out wanted a player like uh, Sigurdsson who uh, at the moment is the clear candidate for the worst transfer of the summer 40, 40 million rising for a, a player who's never really proved himself at the top level of the Premier League in, in a team that's chasing champions, a Champions League place which is what Everton started the season trying to do um, it's just crazy and then David Klassen also um, ok it's early days but he's, he's only started three games for them uh, Koeman dropped him out of the team very quickly himself so th- those are two, two very poor purchases um, but you, you kinda have the perfect storm there when you've got a lot of money on the table and you have a lot of dissenting voices all wanting a chip at the transfer market, all wanting to do their own deals all buying players and and probably that's why you've got um a club that signed what three or four players for the same position and then avoided signing the key <laughs> recruitment that they needed to do which was a, a number 9 to replace Romelu Lukaku.
0: Okay, well, you can look at the the transfers he's made. Sigerson over 40 million, um several players in his time there over 20 million uh Keane Pickford Schneiderlin also in a previous window, and yet they're in the relegation zone. So I suppose it was inevitable that uh, things would come to an end for Cumin. One manager who didn't get that kind of financial backing um, is Frank de Boer. Completely different sort of case. Also lost his job after only four games. So puts the situation with Palace. How do you how do you see that comparing to the situation at Everton, Ian?
1: Well, it's chalk and cheese, Henry, in the sense of um, Palace's biggest investment was uh, Mamadou Sako, who effectively they were almost press ganged into buying um, days before the window uh, because uh, they didn't have any other options. Which, again, given that they knew they needed a centre half, that's weird. They'd said, even when Sako was relatively successful towards the end of the season and avoiding relegation, um, that they couldn't afford either his fee or his salary. So the fact that they didn't find someone. a replacement, you know, which would include Sacco going back to Liverpool from his loan deal, is, is bizarre. But again, that does happen a lot, unfortunately, because the Premier League is so awash with cash that uh, cash will find its way uh, to, to solve those problems. And Sacco, to me, is not even a, you know, a middle-grade uh, Premier League defender. The reason that he um, looked reasonably good towards the end of the season was that he was only defending inside his own box. So it was, it was the old-style... You know, last chance saloon defending, throwing your head here and your body there. And um, I remember several games where Palace great points that, you know, people were saying Osaka oh, was amazing. Well, he wasn't, because the only reason that he did a good job was because he was literally defending on his own six yard line. And, and you know, I could do that if forced to. would prefer not to, obviously, uh, being a striker. But um, the fact is that uh, Frank Debert did not get the money to invest. His two major signings were were loan signings and Ruben Loftus-Cheek from Chelsea, Timothy Fossum-Mensah from Manchester United. Both very good young players, but but not, you would say, a type of player who's battle-hardened enough, having played effectively the majority of their football in the academy teams at two elite clubs, to come into a club like Palace and stave off relegation from the kick-off on day one. <clears throat> so, I don't think that De Boer, um <clears throat> Excuse me. was invested in heavily enough. Uh, He clearly, and we did talk about this in a past Transfer Window podcast, tried to change the entire philosophy of the club um, over the course of six weeks of pre-season training to make them play to a 3-4-3. When you do that, and it doesn't quite work, my uh, experience with football players is you're giving them an excuse to fail, and I always say this, and even players themselves say it, give a player an excuse to fail and he will fail. Because When results don't go your way, he'll, it'll be everyone else's fault. In this case, it was the manager and his ability, he him wanted to change the system. However, I'll give you a little insight into the politics um, of a Premier League football uh, recruitment policy. I was in a meeting with a couple of recruitment executives at a Premier League club recently <clears throat> regarding recruitment for the January window, and in the course of that conversation, um, I asked purely sort of out of my own curiosity, um, why is the manager not here? And I, said, I was told, well, the manager's at training and he doesn't need to be here anyway. And I said, well, call me old-fashioned, <clears throat> but if I was any a manager of a football team and my job depended on the players being brought in, not only would I want to be involved in the meetings where recruitment was discussed, but any player that was seriously considered being bought, whether he was recommended by the manager, partly by the manager or not, I want to meet that player. I will look in his eyes, talk to him, and know that he's committed to my cause, my philosophy, and my way of playing. i He's my player, even if I didn't choose him in the first place. And the two um, f- executives that were with me sort of looked at each other in amazement, as if to say, my God, you are old-fashioned, <laughs> because that's not how it's done anymore. And I'm thinking, well, if I was a football manager, my job is on the line. That's how I'd want it done. But as I said, maybe I am old-fashioned in that sense. I think the Boer was deprived of any of that kind of, um, uh, let's even just say courtesy, to be able to choose players, look in their eyes and ask them for with them. And of course, he paid for his job after four games. So if we're looking at a manager whose job was defined by a transfer window, then I think De Boer is the best example of that.
2: Yeah, I think, I think you make a very good point there, Ian. And, and what I would say in terms of that old-fashionedness, two of the top managers in the Premier League, Um, were very insistent on having the right to talk to players before they were signed. (coughs) Antonio Conte um, was famously instructed by Chelsea to stop um, speaking to players that they wanted to sign, which he he perhaps didn't want um, in the last transfer window because Chelsea felt he was um, putting the players off from committing to the moves. But Conte himself... And the players he wants to sign, and all players he wants to speak to them and find out if they're committed to him, if they're the right guys for the club. So he wants that that right. And Jose Mourinho, probably more involved than anyone in of the Premier League managers directly in recruitment, very much spends a lot of his time contacting players to assess whether they are the right stock to bring in before pushing the button on, on very expensive decisions that have repercussions if they go wrong as for crystal palace um i think you're absolutely right again um palace made a very brave move when they'd only just avoided relegation to say we're going to change our entire um footballing philosophy and bring in a guy who's a coach from ajax who's going to play technical um modern football and we're going to do it um, over the course of one summer with a squad that has been described by to me by people who work with them as one that's a kind of ramshackle uh, selection of guys that have been signed um in desperation quite often in january windows to try and avoid relegation who are a lot of them overpaid for their abilities and therefore hard to move on and who in that last season where they almost got relegated took months to realise the gravity of their situation and get the the final points they required to stay up. So um, to have that squad of players, to have that philosophy, uh, attempt to change your philosophy, and then only to make one significant um, signing, and that of a player who had effectively already been in the squad and and almost certainly wasn't the Boers' first choice for the. Position if he'd been given a first choice himself, just as a recipe for disaster, and the disaster pretty quickly in, in, ensued.
0: Okay, I think we've got a quick fire here. Um, and you can you can slow it down a little if you like to explain. It. But um, you know, Ian, you've uh, you said at this at the top that you know possibly about 75 to 80 percent of players are not. Signed with the manager's final seal of approval. Yeah. Um, so why don't we go through the clubs and you can tell us sure. who you know who is uh, who's signing players through the board or through a committee or who's who's allowing the manager the final. Let's call rubber it committee. Stamp. Let's call it committee okay. here because
1: that's generally how it is. Okay. Um, but the manager has a final say on a player. Well, what you tend to find is that will be his pet project. If you like, yeah. that will be the, the that will be. The concession by the committee to the manager to make him think he's in charge. Okay. So they'll give him one or two players who he specifically says he wants to sign, right. and they'll do their best to sign them. And then the manager has the satisfaction of knowing that at least he's got some say, if you like, in the in the final action of the transfer.
0: Well, I'll shout out a club, and you can, uh, the two you can tell me what we need to know, but but keep it brief, Duncan. <laughs> um, who's going first?
2: You want the benefit of our wisdom or not,
0: We do. Come on. Right, Duncan, you can go first and I'll, and I'll go to a matter close to your heart. Um, <laughs> Manchester United.
2: Yeah, and Look, Manchester United, the, the transfer policy is driven by the manager more than any other club in the Premier League at the moment. So Mourinho definitely has the final say on any signing and, and, and usually the first say of um, first-team signings as well.
0: Ian, Manchester City. I think um,
1: Guardiola has a very good relationship with the two executives who are in charge of both the negotiating um, and the final contractual negotiations with players, uh, given that you worked with him at Barcelona for five years. And I'd say that Guardiola has 85-90% influence on incoming and outgoing.
0: Okay. Duncan, Tottenham Hotspur.
2: Tottenham, as we know, the the transfer policy is driven by Daniel Levy. Um, It's something that's fundamental to him in terms of the financial running of the club and the long-term development. But uh, Pochettino does have a say. Um, Pochettino's complaint about the transfer policy at Tottenham is that he's only allowed to um, uh, pursue players in a certain category, i.e., uh, don't cost too much in transfer fee, are of a, an age where they would be resellable, and are within a, the salary band of the club.
0: Okay, Ian, this is, a, this is an interesting one. Chelsea?
1: I would say, Duncan that, uh, and Henry, that um, in la- the last window, um, and this is what's caused all the friction with Antonio Conte, is that Conte had an input, but certainly not the final say on any transfer out or into the club. <coughs> and that uh, will be the deciding factor uh, whether he stays at Chelsea for the, the whole of this season, or whether at least before then, my bet would be on the latter that he won't be there for the entire season I think January will bring another clash of um, personality with the managing director, Marina Granskaya and director of football, Michael Manalo, both of whom have been entrusted by Roman Abramovich to sign and sell players <clears throat> uh, to a club which, remarkably has had a net spend and transfer window in the last uh, eight years average of under £30 million, which both Eminem and okay, therefore say it done. works.
0: <laughs> OK, Duncan, Arsenal.
2: Yeah, Arsenal... Um, Arsenal still Arsene Wenger has the last say in transfers, but they've moved more towards the kind of analytical model of employing Uh, scientists to uh, use algorithms to decide which players or recommend players to to sign. So those guys are involved in the transfer process there. But as far as I know, Wenger can veto anything coming in.
0: Ian Liverpool.
2: Uh, Klopp has a say,
1: but the infamous transfer committee, which led to all of Brendan Rodgers' Um, frustrations when he was there, still very powerful. Uh, And I think Klopp's influence is less than 30% on all ingoing and
2: outgoing.
0: Duncan, West Ham United.
2: Well, West Ham United, um, the reason Slavin Bilic is is very close to losing his job is because of the, the, the transfer window they had. Bilic's own perspective on that is that he was trusted on transfers going into it and uh, gave the the board a a large number of recommendations and players he wanted. Um, The most important one being William Carvalho uh, because he he wanted to rebuild the midfield around him and he did a lot of work uh, personally direct with Carvalho to persuade him to come to the club. And then when it came down to it, after some bad results, he feels that um, the board refused to put any of those key transfers through. So they, they 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 did things to give them the impression they were still working on the deals, but realistically none of those deals were going to happen.
0: Okay, Ian, sixth place in the table. We might as well look at Watford.
1: Um yeah I think Marco Silva has a lot of influence. I think also that the owners of the club there have a lot of advisors who they actually trusted to appoint Marco Silva. So Marco Silva has the trust of the advisers who took him to Watford and um, um, I think Silva has around 70% of final say on what happens at Watford.
0: Okay we won't go through them all but you can pick one more each that you think might be interesting to comment on. Duncan?
2: Who um, would be interesting? Uh, Leicester City I suppose we haven't discussed I mean, there's a, another club which is, has sat their their manager um, after a, a poor transfer window. Um, you know, look look at the players they bought, and only one of them has made nine all nine appearances. The most any any of the other new signings. And you've got a guy like Ian Ashu coming in at over twenty million pounds. Has only made two Premier League starts. Um, and then they had the catastrophe of of Adrian Silva being signed after deadline and not being able to use him. Um, Craig Shakespeare definitely did not have primary say on who they recruited in that window. And, uh, and okay, we'll,
0: we'll, come back to it. we'll come back to Leicester. Uh, Ian. You got West, <coughs> West Bromwich, Albion, Henry
1: are a very interesting example because um, Tony Pulis is respected as having uh, all the wealth of knowledge he's had from his years of managing different clubs and different divisions. They don't have a transfer committee as such but, but Pulis does have the final say on players who come and leave the club Um, great example of that is Johnny Evans he said absolutely no way can I afford to lose him if we lose Johnny Evans we get relegated and the club said fine we don't sell even though they they stood to make a tremendous profit another another good example very quickly uh, Tony absolutely didn't want to lose Darren Fletcher but Darren wanted to move closer back to his family home in, in Cheshire and went to Stoke and so he said this is Pulis get me Gareth Barry, because he can, he can do that. And then Gregor K- K- Kravishak as well from PSG, they did it. So, you know, fair play to Tony Pulis. He is respected as someone who can and can be trusted to act responsibly in the market.
0: Okay, thanks for that, gents. Um Duncan, you raised Leicester and we, you know, we flagged up, we talk about Shakespeare at the the, the start of the pod. Um Duncan said a little bit of a say on Shakespeare, wit. which... Um, What's your read on how that situation played out um, in terms of the the window. Obviously, they've had they've, they've spent some money um, and they've had a bit of a, a problem with the Adrian Silva signing from Sporting Lisbon, who they mm. paid 21 million for. Yet they registered him from 14 seconds too late, and he won't play till January. Um, you know that kind of deal possibly cost Craig Shakespeare his job.
1: Well. I don't think you can blame Craig Shakespeare for the administration staff um, getting it wrong in terms of their timings and everything else. Like, this isn't the first example of that, remember we had this absolutely ludicrous situation two seasons ago where um, David De Heer's transfer to Real Madrid had been agreed and finalised and, but the paperwork was submitted late and someone blamed it because it was a fax machine. Seriously? Is this like David Brent's office we're working in here? Manchester United use a fax machine to, for their transfers or indeed Real Madrid do. So. You can't blame Shakespeare for that one. What I'd say is that Shakespeare, to my knowledge and to my intuition, was an accidental Leicester manager. Uh, accidental in the sense that he, he got the job by knifing Claudio Ranieri in the back. Uh, no accident there. But accidental in that he then got appointed full-time, um, having had a relatively successful rebound reaction on the squad uh, at the end of last season to keep them from being relegated, and then got found out. Found out for being not up to the job. Um, you know, he couldn't handle players, couldn't handle the same egos who assisted him in getting rid of Ranieri. And as I said before, you give a player a, a, a reason to, to fail and they will fail. And those, some of those same players who supported um, his actions against Ranieri in the revolution that happened last season then turned on Shakespeare. And guess what? It's like mini-Chelsea. This is you know what happened under Andre Villas-Boas and even Jose Mourinho when he was sacked by Chelsea. The players, if they turn against you, can get you the sack, even if you signed them. In this case, Shakespeare signed two players, in Ineanacho and Harry Maguire, for fairly hefty transfer fees um, in Leicester terms. Um, Maguire's been okay, has the ability to maybe become better. Ineanacho, I think, was an incredibly inflated price, but then again... As we said before, Guilford Sigurdsson, 50 million, was incredibly overpriced as well. Um, he Neither have been outstanding. anyone Nacho has been anonymous in terms of Premier League goals. Um, and I think the Adrian Silver thing uh, simply made everyone look bad at Leicester City. Uh, the fact that they've appoint, appointed a failed Southampton manager in Claude Puel, I think we're heading exactly the same way. Will even last the season would be the question I'd put to you, Duncan?
2: I'm not sure puel 's such a bad appointment, to be honest. I, I know he was unpopular at Southampton because of the way he played football. That was the complaint from the fans. But um, the actual performances on the pitch and, and and results weren't terrible. And you know, remember they he wasn't far away from winning them silverware. You know yeah. the, that game against Manchester United they could have won. They, they performed very well in it. So. I kind of see the reasoning from Leicester. It was a surprise appointment, but I see the reasoning and they've got a guy with Premier League experience who showed himself capable of, of keeping the kind of level of squad that Leicester have um, well away from relegation. And, and that's, you know, that's the goal at the moment. It's uh, Do not get relegated. Do not lose the Premier League money. So, um, yeah, it's maybe a more intelligent appointment than, than some people are giving it credit for. Long term, we'll see long term we'll see that if he, if he doesn't entertain once he's saved them from relegation then i can see the tie owners getting fed up with that and wanting another yeah. change but that's more to do with the characteristic of the owners than than the, the the decision in terms of appointing someone to keep you in the premier league
0: how do we see this Leicester city tale panning out um you know it's it's the uh, from rags to riches to, <laughs> it's almost rags isn't it <clears throat>
1: it's a bit. And it shouldn't be like that, uh, Henry. Because they get a, a very large slice, same as every club of the of the broadcast money. Um, the Premier League win seems a long time ago now. Uh, admittedly, given the the trials and tribulations since, but they've got a, a generous benefactor uh, in their owners, um, who I think will invest again for the right man. I think one of the things that we've not mentioned so far is losing Diane Drinkwater, who was not just a leader on the pitch, but off the pitch was a fulcrum of the squad. Someone who, you know, when times were bad, could actually lift the rest of them. Um, uh, even people like Jamie Vardy uh, looked to drink water for inspiration uh, when things weren't going wrong. So losing him to Chelsea, which again, that, that's a kind of a non sequitur regarding drink water's ambition and his desire to, to move up in the world. Um, I think, uh, you know, if if Puel comes in uh, and applies the kind of rigorous discipline that he did at Southampton, which Duncan uh, referred to, then they should be okay, um, or certainly should be contesting relegation. Whereas at the moment they and Crystal Palace seem to be almost condemned to it. Um, so uh, <coughs> as I said Puel is is going to give them. There's going to be a rebound effect. Um, they've got some um, games coming up that they have to get points from. Uh, if indeed the Puel uh, is to have any chance, because uh, the January window is looming upon us. Um, Clubs are already uh, looking to bring players in. I know Leicester City are looking to bring in three or four. Uh, Therefore, there's guys in that dressing room right now whose places are going to be at stake uh, come the next transfer window. And it's up to them in the next few games to convince the new manager that they're better players than they were under the old one.
0: Okay, well, uh, moving on from that, we have, uh, this week, we uh, saw the best FIFA awards handed out. Um, A bunch of journalists dotted around the the world get their, their chance to tell us who the best player of the year has been and who the best manager. And representing Scotland is none other than our very own Duncan Castles. So, Duncan, your votes caused a little bit of a stir, on the Twitter sphere, do you want to tell us who you voted for and then why?
2: Yeah. Look, uh, first of all, let's clarify the voting process. So it's um, the captain of each international team, the coach of each international team, and then a, a journalist selected by FIFA for each um, association gets a vote, and those votes are are combined to decide the overall winner. Um, for player of the year i voted for cristiano ronaldo, Lionel messi and then marcelo um which, which is, was
0: quite close to the the final results only ronaldo won obviously messi was second and uh, neymar uh, was third
2: yeah and i voted for marcelo because he's a player i've, I've always thought it was exceptional at left back and i've quite a, a, i always feel that full backs are undervalued in in world football so it's uh, rightly so opportunity to give him some credit for a, <laughs> well, it's been an impressive career the, the one that, that was um, uh, unpopular with, uh, and questioned by um, certain uh, people was the, the coach of the year vote and I voted um, for Jose Mourinho as coach of the year Zidane second and the Monaco coach Leonardo Jargin as third choice um, now my reasoning there is very it's actually it's a very tight decision between Zidane or Mourinho but my reasoning there is that you know if you have the it's obviously an honour to be selected by FIFA to, to get to, to make that vote and I've no idea why they select people it was um second time I've done it many um,
1: of the, many of the, many people on social media have been asking that same question this week Duncan
2: <laughs> they haven't. You they need to put that. <laughs> no idea why. I'm- with, yeah.
1: with much more colourful language, the way you just put it.
2: <laughs> the only, my, my only theory is that um, I've attended a lot of uh, FIFA tournaments uh, as a football journalist, from ranging from the 2002 World Cup onwards, um, including youth tournaments and Confederations Cups. So possibly it's because of my attendance record at FIFA events, but I don't know. That's just my theory. Um, I got in hit by my the school attend- for
1: having a good attendance record, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go
2: on. And I hope you I hope you used that privilege well, Ian.
1: I did. I, I actually boycotted a trip to see Cliff Richard play, given he'd played Sun City in South Africa. <laughs> I made sure that <laughs> Sun sure City in High School
0: didn't go to watch Cliff Richard. There's plenty of reasons to boycott a Cliff Richard concert. He doesn't need to play in Sun City to do that. <laughs>
1: sorry Duncan, we do
2: digress. Substantially, yes, we do. Um, So the decision between Mourinho and Zidane, if you're asked to vote in this, uh, I presume the point is to use your um, informed opinion as a journalist uh, to educate who you think is the better coach. And for me, if you're deciding on coach of the year, it's about added value. It's about some of the things we've been talking about. So what resources do you have? Um, And what results do you produce with those resources? Um, We were given a list of 10 coaches to choose from, pre-selected by FIFA. My analysis on Zidane is that last season and this season, he has the best squad in terms of depth and quality that any football manager has had. Um, Certainly way ahead of of any of the opponents uh, he had in Spanish League and in the Champions League. Um, He also had the best player in the world as part of his team. He was facing Barcelona, who were um, something of a basket case uh, domestically. Um, Superb achievement. You can't argue with winning the Spanish League and winning the Champions League and winning the Champions League two times in a row, but talking to the people who work with Zidane and know him as a coach, the question for them is how much value does he add? And will, will we see, how will he do when he leaves Real Madrid? How will he do when he leaves that kind of environment where he has such great advantages in terms of players to work with? Um, he certainly wasn't involved in the recruitment of the club, um, so, yes, he's achieved the maximum he could do there, but how much value did he add compared to Mourinho, who came into a Manchester United that, as we've discussed many times in this Transfer Window podcast, and I think people are, are beginning to forget it, was a basket case club when he came in. A terrible squad that needed <laughs> huge surgery. still needs significant surgery after two windows. It's a, that, that rebuild process isn't complete. Um, players who were used to not winning, were, were happy, uh, didn't feel the pain when they, they dropped points um, or lost games. And he uh, won silverware at the, the, the first attempt with the League Cup and then achieved the target you had been given at the start of the season, which was to get them into the Champions League by winning the Europa League. So, And on top of that, he was the guy who drove the transfer policy. So the, the, a lot of what helped Manchester United succeed last season was recruiting well and bringing players in and building a basis for the club to go forward. And as we've discussed in this podcast, he was the, the primary force in that. So in terms of the breadth of job, job he did, in terms of the added value he did, for me, he just pipped Sudan as being the best coach of um, the year. A lot of the criticism um, that I received for that was on, on the, the basis that I was the only person who voted for Jose Mourinho. Um, that's not accurate. Um, there were uh, 17 media representatives who voted for Mourinho. I was the only one who gave him the first vote. And if you look at the, the, the distribution of votes that he got from the players and coaches and his overall position, he, he finished fifth overall, just behind um, Joachim Lowe. And uh, not far behind Massimo Allegri, he was third. Um, with the players' vote, he was, he was um, uh, ahead of Lowe in votes and just behind Allegri. And with the coaches' vote, he got two-thirds of um, Allegri's votes from the coaches. Um, so he got substantial votes from the players and the coaches. It was only with the media... That he got um, just a quarter of the votes of the other guy. So it's it's interesting and it maybe tells you a bit about perceptions of Mourinho that his vote was so much lower amongst media representatives than it was against uh, amongst the, the the professionals who play and um, and manage in the game.
0: Well, we're talking about the best coaches in the world, and certainly um, there's there's one guy up here who um i imagine believes he's in that company um and he's legs like in the Zidane he uh works with a squad of players uh, superior to those around them through sheer uh, size of club that he's at and the budgets they work with we're talking of course about Brendan Rodgers at Celtic um last night Celtic uh, played their uh Main rivals for the Premier League title, if you can call them that, Aberdeen, who, um, like Celtic, had been undefeated uh, in the Premier League season up until last night, uh, was a head to head in the two teams, and Celtic um, absolutely wiped the floor with Aberdeen 3 0. Um, so that's now his first season, uh, undefeated domestically, probably just sort of the stiffest challenge that they'll face in uh, the Scottish domestic game this year, which is a trip to, to Um, I'm not sure, can we see Brendan Rogers sticking around? as enough of a challenge for Brendan Rogers, or do we see him possibly heading back south to a club, uh, funnily enough, who have a managerial vacancy like Everton? Ian, I know you know Brendan. Um, yeah, what are I, your thoughts?
1: I'd say that... Um... Uh, first of all, Brendan Rodgers uh, enjoys managing Celtic immensely. Uh, it was his uh, boys club that he supported, he's made that obvious. Um, and so managing them uh, it, in part of his coaching career was always going to be an ambition. It probably came earlier than he thought it might, um, given that he left Liverpool and had a time off before being appointed. He's, again, facts, history tell us that he's doing everything uh, and more, asked of him. He's won every uh, competition domestically that they've entered so far. He's, he's unbeaten domestically as well. And here's the big but. Uh, Brendan is um, a very ambitious man. Uh, he's still a very young coach uh, in relative terms. And he wants to prove himself at the very highest level. At the moment, his only opportunity to do that is in the Champions League. And as we've seen uh, with results, um, barring obviously the one in Belgium, uh, Celtic are not in any way uh, the force to be reckoned with in the Champions League that they are in the Scottish Premier League and I know from speaking to Brendan from friends of Brendan as well that that frustrates him because as much as they may have uh, more financial um, power and uh, the reputation and history of Celtic Football Club it's still an attractive prospect to players, especially even foreign players as well as um, domestic ones coming to them uh, to play at Celtic and play at Celtic Park in front of those fans. The fact that Brendan, as a coach, doesn't have the tools, players' resources at his disposal to compete um, in Champions League terms and make an impact for Celtic in Champions League terms is is an immense frustration. I think for anyone who's ambitious in their career, uh, the objective of proving yourself at a higher level is got to be a driving one. And look, I know that Everton are, are very interested in Brendan Rodgers. When they sacked Ronald Koeman, they didn't actually have a candidate singled out, a primary single candidate who they believed that they would get and would sign. Ancelotti, obviously, has, has been widely touted. It's my belief that Ancelotti does not want to coach Everton. And therefore, it comes down to people like Sean Dyche. Um, people mentioned Sam Dyche. I don't believe that. I think Brendan is certainly in the top three there in terms of Everton's choices. And obviously, there's some personal history there but because Brendan managed Liverpool. I don't think Brendan would see that as a a problem for him. Um, after all, Liverpool sacked him uh, and it's now been shown that his win percentage rate uh, is better after the same amount of Premier League games than Jurgen Klopp's. So... Brendan's been the manager's came closest to going in the Premier League in <clears throat> the 22 years since Liverpool last won at the top division, any other manager. So why not go to Everton, do a good job, prove himself there and then move to a, a bigger club, a more elite club? I, I suspect Brendan would see that as within his capabilities. Um, I think timing is against him in this one. I don't think he wants to walk out on Celtic at this moment uh, in his tenure. He still thinks they can qualify for European football after... Uh, Christmas, whether that be Europa League or not and I think seeing out certainly this season would be his preference but opportunities don't come along that often for a club which has the sort of potential stature and history as Everton so I think it'll be a very interesting three, four, five days remember after this weekend we're going to the international break so the Everton owners uh, and board have time uh, after this weekend and David Dunsworth has already been confirmed in charge to actually then perhaps meet people face-to-face. We talked about earlier the importance of looking in the eyes of someone and knowing they're committed to your project to meet the people uh, who they are considering for the job and then make an announcement which allows that coach to then go train with the non-international players uh, and get a feel for the training ground and everything else and then take them forward into the rest of the season and, of course, a very important January window. So my um, personal sort of uh, outlook on this is Brenda would be a good fit for Everton Uh, it's a difficulty in terms of timing uh, for him to leave Celtic but again um, these opportunities don't come up necessarily when you want them to therefore uh, I'd say there's a a decision to be made both by Brendan Rodgers and by Everton and of course by Celtic if they want to release him in the next uh, 7-10 to days
0: Certainly the word coming from uh, around the club um, and and in the the media is that you know Brendan Rodgers has no intention of leaving Celtic for a club of a lesser stature, and you, you know, you would have to say that Everton would not. Make, correct me if I'm wrong, but Celtic would be certainly as seen here as a much bigger club than the likes of Everton. But is Duncan is realistically is Brendan Rodgers going to walk out of Celtic into a club bigger than Everton?
2: Look, um, in in world football terms, and in terms of practical resources on you, you can put onto the field and the, the level you're playing at, I think you've got to say that Everton are a bigger club than Celtic at the moment, not in history, but in terms of what the job involves, the stage you're you're playing on, and the resources available to you to. Um, to structure your squad and and build things going forward so um i think that that that's not the aspect of the decision for for brendan rogers if everton were to approach him and offer them the job um i think strength as a manager is that he is an extremely hard worker um, he's a, he's very diligent about his training methods he's um he's worked under good people and and um and worked extremely hard to to gain as much from them and take as much from them as possible to develop himself as a manager. So from that perspective, Ian's absolutely right that this isn't a good time to take over a club. A manager like Rodgers, who, who prepares well and, and puts a lot of stock in his training, will always want to take over a club in the summer when he's got the ability to do a full pre-season and have a full transfer window to... To set the team up and give himself the best um, platform to work from, so that 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 would definitely be a thing um, against moving there. Um, I would say he'd have to be a very brave man to um, to go back to Merseyside um, with his history with Liverpool and then take over at Everton. But um, he's always struck me as a extremely self confident and ambitious individual, so a factor for him. He'd be ready to take that challenge on. Certainly that ambition and self-confidence translates into thinking that his ultimate place in football is above the status of a club like Everton. So he, he would see it as a stepping stone. Um, go back to England, prove yourself again in the Premier League as a top manager and then wait and see which of the of the the very big jobs come open and I think as we've discussed before he'd be a candidate for Chelsea because of his history at the club and the fact that Chelsea change their managers on on average every two years if not if not quicker than that so those opportunities are going to turn up. Um, the final point would be I would, I would say if Brendan Rogers does take um, the Everton job then the press conferences on Merseyside are going to be some of the most um, amusing uh, in English football, because we'll, <laughs> we'll have two it men, two men who have um, don't seem to have any hesitancy in saying some quite absurd things at certain moments um, about their team uh, in defence of their their football, or even in overegging the the recipe when it comes to um, talking about expectations of what the club can do compared to their realistic status they're at at the time.
0: Okay, well, we'll see what happens to uh, Brendan. Thanks for joining us again, gents. Wonderful to talk to you as always. This has been the Transfer Window podcast. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Audio Boom. You can find us on a bunch of other places. And as usual, I can't remember what they are called. But we'll be back next week. Hope you are too.